that. Okay, so we're going to be back in 1 Samuel. We've come up to about 1 Samuel 13 today, and I'm glad that all of you all are here. As soon as I get my cord untangled here, I'm going to open us up with prayer. So, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here today. That we have this opportunity to, to come together, to study your word, to enjoy our fellowship um, as we approach Holy Week. Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter. And we just pray that um, you will hold us close and you will open our minds and hearts to you so that we may be transformed by these these hours that we spend together. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in, we finished up 1 Samuel 12. Now, being a teacher as I am, we're going to go back to the very end of 1 Samuel 12 to connect things. But where we have been are the stories of Saul being made king of the united tribes. Okay? Before the tribes united under Saul's kingship, God was their king, and there were people called judges who settled disputes among the tribes of Israel and who led them into battle. And those, now you know some of the names. You know Samson, and you probably know Gideon, and you might know Deborah, maybe Barak or Jephthah. In fact, we're going to talk about Jephthah today if we get far enough in the story of Saul. But Saul, the people demanded a king. Um, God relented, I think is the way to see the story, and said, okay, you're adults, I'll give you what you want. And uh, Samuel warned them there was a bad decision, that kings were takers. And I urged you last week to always be looking for the verb take as we go through the coming chapters, because it's kind of, all, so often it's very significant, this, this business of taking. And um, uh, it's such a momentous story in the history of Israel, the first human king, Saul, this king, that you get, it told, it's, it's, like, it, it's like three times he's announced to be king. First, when um, Samuel anoints him, Secondly, when there is a big drawing of lots among all the tribes and eventually it comes down upon Saul. And then last week we saw that Saul led the Israelites in battle against the Ammonites. The Ammonites are on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They are the enemies to the east. And he led them in battle, rescuing Jabesh Gilead. And after the victory, ya, 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 he is... Shout, shout, you know, the crowds are shouting for him and everything, um, and he is king. So he's king, 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 king. But at the end of chapter 12, the people express some remorse for having asked of God a human king. And boy, isn't that our life? You know, don't you often you know, you think you know what you want, and then you get it, and then you have what? What do we call We call it buyer's remorse sometimes, right? You know, we so often don't, 
we can probably express what we want, but that doesn't mean it's what we need. And often we come to see what it is that we need a little bit more clearly. And so in any event, the people come to Samuel and they say to Samuel the prophet, not to Saul, they say to Samuel the prophet, he's old now and you know, they say to Samuel, okay, um, would you pray to God on our behalf that we ask for and have been given this human king? So, before I plunge in, in 1 Samuel, the last paragraph in chapter 12, any thoughts or questions? You know how this class works. If you ever have want to stop and have a thought or a question, just raise your hand. I love it. If I don't see it, somebody else will help me and point out to me that hand. And I see one over there, way on the side. Okay. Question about the size of the armies. The size of the armies. Yes. Quite often, quite a bit of hyperbole. Hyperbole. And yes. Okay, so the question I'm getting is, there is hyperbole in the size of the armies, and that is not unique to the Jews, to the Israelites. That you find in ancient writings about people and their armies, because it glorifies themselves, their armies, and their leaders, and they didn't... They were not as obsessed with counting stuff. You know, in the Hebrew, pretty much the biggest number they have is a thousand. They don't need a bigger number than a thousand. That's a, that, that's a big number in the ancient world. And so the question is, might that same hyperbole apply to ages? And I think, yes, it probably does. And it is a way because what are the markers of having been blessed by God? A lot of children, a lot of um, livestock, really, that's, that's a key that's a, you know, these are nomadic people, so it's not so much land, it is livestock and it is years. And so years is a way to, to lift up and honor your ancestors. Now, I mean, that, that's my take on it, right? Um, other people will have a different understanding of that, but that's mine and you ask me and I'm here. Okay? You could ask somebody else and they might give you a different take. But, you know, um, I, I, like I said last week, a really good way to approach the Bible is very seriously, but not literally the way people so often mean it, because you end up doing, I think, a, a lot of, you don't, it's like you're not respecting that these are ancient writings that have come to us across thousands and thousands of years. If you think that they work and they live and they count and they think as we do, they don't. We have a modernist worldview with science and gravity and rockets going to the moon and Mars and Jupiter and all this kind of stuff and the earth is round and yada 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 on it goes and there are germs and bacteria and the rest of it and we have that. Ancient world has none of that. So you can't bring this world and impose it on these writings or you're not going to hear it well. You're going to pay attention to the wrong things. The size of the army isn't really the point. Well, except today. You'll see, in, you'll see today, 
I think, why the armies are sized as they are. Okay? So anyway. Okay, where's my iPad here? Turn on. Okay, so let's just go back to Samuel 12, verse 20. No, we're not online? Hmm. Just apologize to the people, and there we go. You can't. I'm not online. You can't apologize to people. Oh, well, never mind. I would. You know I would. Verse 20. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from God. But serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can't do you any good nor can they rescue you because they are useless. Worse than useless, they don't even exist. I mean, the, the little statue, statuette does, but there is no actual Baal. There is no actual Asherah or Ashtaroth. They're figments of people's spiritual imagination. Just came on. Okay, well, hi, online people. I'm glad you're here. And I just started. <laughs> I just started. So you didn't miss too much except for that fabulous moment. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're at about verse 22 in 1 Samuel 12. I just am going back to last week to connect things together. Verse 22. For the sake of his great name, Yahweh will not reject his people because Yahweh was pleased to make you his own. And it is, see, it's through these people that God is rescuing humanity. God made promises about doing that. And God is not only the great promise maker, God is the great promise keeper. So, if you sometimes wonder why God is relentless in this, it is because he loves these people, he loves us, he, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but he made a promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him and his family. And God is going to keep that promise. And that promise, the, the, the embodiment of that promise keeping has a name, and that name is Jesus. Okay? Verse 23. As for me, far be it from me, this is Samuel speaking, that I should sin against Yahweh by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. That's, if you want to summarize, what are, what's the teaching perspective of Scripture from beginning to end is to teach us what is good and right, to show us who God is. Um, Paul writes, you know, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for um, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness to show us what is good and right because God is good and right and to find God's way. Same thing here. 3,000 years ago. Verse 24. But be sure to fear the Lord. We talked about that last week. And serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. You know, if you want to take the wrong path with your life, you can. You can. One thing that's clear in the Old Testament is that God treats the people as adults. The metaphor is often a parent-child metaphor, but, but 
But these are adults who have hearts and they have brains and, and, and they can choose God or they can choose against God. What you don't find in scripture is some middle ground, some mealy mouth, well, I don't know, we'll see. That you don't find. And um, classically in the Gospel of John, you're in the darkness until you step into the light, which is kind of true. You know, you're in the darkness and you know, there's, you're just in the darkness until what? Until you step into the light, and that is the light of God, the light of Christ. Christ is the light of the world in the prologue of John. So, um, yeah. So don't be surprised that there's always this recognition that there's choices that the people can make. Okay? Thoughts, questions before we go on? Okay. Looking for hands. Okay, Don, give me it. Why, what? Why, why does the king, if, if, if you are, do wicked things and I'm the king, why am I punished too? I haven't done anything wicked. You know that last phrase. This, the, 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 the last phrase doesn't, isn't really, a, I mean, what's spoken here is addressed to the people, not so much to the king even, but it is a collective sin of Israel. And when, and when you go on, you'll see that, yes, there are people who, there are good kings who choose God and, and try to bring the people to God, and there's a whole bunch of bad kings who lead the people away from God. But it's, it's much more of a communitarian, collective idea than we Americans are used to. We're very individualistic. That's just, that, that's our history, that's our culture, that's the way we thought about ourselves, Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, um, you know, build your home. I remember in Plano when I first turned to town, I saw that everybody had these big wooden fences all separating the yards. You couldn't see the neighbors for anything. The, the neighbor you knew best was not the person on either side, but the person on the other side of the alley because their garage backed up to your garage. I thought all that was kind of odd for a while, but um, we are very individualistic. That perspective is not the perspective of this culture. This culture is a familial culture, a collective culture, a communitarian culture. It is much, <laughs> I did a whole class on this once. It's much closer to the culture you find in the family of the Godfather in the movies, um, sans the I almost said sans the violence, I'm not even sure about that, um, than it is the way we tend to think of ourselves. So we always, it, when we read Paul, we always hear Paul speaking to me. We don't realize that in the Greek, most of the YOUs are actually y'alls. He's speaking to the community. So that's always, so that's a good, good question. All right. Verse 13, wait, verse 13, chapter 13, yes. verse 1. Yes? Um, no. She probably asked me if I had another slide that says the 21st. No, I messed that up. I don't know. See, this is close to the earlier question. I don't know what week it is. <laughs> It's, is today Tuesday? Is, is today Tuesday? Yes. Ah, that's enough for me. Okay, I don't know. Okay, I'm going to put up a different slide then. 
There we go. Get that sucker down. What am I confusing people for? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I know, I know. So let's get this thing up here and I won't confuse them anymore. Don't ask me why I didn't change it to 2-1 today. I, I don't know. <laughs> yes. So, all right, 13-1. This is so interesting to me. Here's the NIV. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. The NRSV tells you that in the ancient text, it's Saul was blank years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel blank two years. It's not there and indeed in a number of the ancient texts the verse isn't there at all. So I take from that that we'll take all of this with a grain of salt. Saul was middle-aged, somewhere around 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Um, and let me just point out something coming up. He reigns over Israel, but you will know who his successor is long before those 42 years are up. Okay? So he's going to be reigning, but uh, his successor is going to be known long before the 42 years are over, if it actually should be counted as 42 years. Okay. So we're now going to enter some battle scenes. That's, what, that, that's what's going to happen now. It's who are, who's going to be at battle. No longer the Ammonites to the east, but the enemies to the west. And who are the enemies to the west? Philistines. The Philistines are the enemies to the west. The seafaring people. That's what he's here for. Don't give Jim a hard time, but he's going to get it right. One of these days he'll get it wrong, and we'll all know that. So... <laughs> Okay, now, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. Is that, is that a doable number? Yes, that's a doable number. Okay, 2,000 were with him at Michmash. Michmash, isn't that a great name? Where are you well, we drove from here to Atlanta and back. We saw some very interesting place names. One sign I misread for a moment, I thought it said Eastabuga. That wasn't it, it was East of Boga, which isn't much better, but anyway, there you go. <laughs> all these places are up here in the central hill country. That's where all the action is inside the red circle. Jerusalem's down toward the bottom of the red circle. There's Michmash right over there. If you can see the screen well enough, you see there's a cross sword there because it's telling you there's gonna be, there's gonna be a battle there. So that's where this action is happening. It doesn't matter you know exactly where these places are. If you look at maps that Bibles and atlases and other folks offer you, you soon realize people don't agree about where all these places were. Okay? This, this has, well, I won't go into the detail, but they don't all agree. They put the little places and they're slightly different places, but that's okay. It's 3,000 years ago. That's a long time. Okay? So verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. That's the, that's, the, that's the town of Bethel, house of God it means. 
and three and a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. Gibeah is also on the map. Now, he, I don't think we've been told who Jonathan is. I look back, I, could, I, I, I think this is the first time we come across Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. And in the ancient world, um, the way it worked was that kings passed their thrones on to their sons. Okay, for, um, for 400 years in the history of the Israelites, the southern kingdom of Judah passed the throne on from father to son for 400 years. And a lot of the sons were not such good kings, but there were some good ones. So, But this is Jonathan. So he is Saul's son, and we're told the rest of the men he sent back to their homes. So, um, they've got an army of about 3,000, 2,000 with Saul and 1,000 with Jonathan. Now, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, which is also over here in that same area. Because remember, the I don't even know if it's on the map, Remember, the Philistines are always pushing eastward and the Israelites are pushing back to keep them kind of where they belong. And the question for the Israelites is always, are the Philistines making a move on us? Are they really going to try to take over, you know, sort of the Israelite heartland? So Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. It was actually Jonathan, okay? But Saul is the king and the commander, okay? See, Saul has taken credit. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. Well, what that means is we've made them angry. You know, have you ever gone up to like a wasp nest when you were a kid and you just wanted to see what happened if you poked it? How fast would they come out? You discover they come out really fast. You had no idea there could be so many wasps in one little nest. So, it's become obnoxious to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal, also up in the red circle. So now the Philistines are getting worked up, and Saul's commanding people to come at Gilgal, and the folks are responding, well, verse 7, verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's a really big number right there, the sand on the seashore. So what are you being told? What's the point of that sentence? They got a huge army. It's terrifying. They're just, they're just filling the land. They're overwhelming. Philistines have an overwhelming army. They went up, the Philistines went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon, which is now, that's Bethel. That's Bethel, house of God, also later has this name Beth-Avon. 
house of evil because of what happens at Bethel. So it's a later name placed back on this earlier place. That's all. The, you know, it's like people get confused sometimes because the Sea of Galilee had like four different names over time. It just, the, the time spans are so long that um, we have a little trouble, I think, keeping up with the, with the time, time that passes. Verse 6, when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, well, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan River and went to the land of Gad and Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They, wanted, they looked out there and they saw this Philistine army and it appears to them to be so huge, so overwhelming that the Israelites are doomed. They should never have poked that wasp nest, you know, like Jonathan did. Well, what is to be done? What is to be done? Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. You know, sat as, a, as, a, as a book, as a piece of writing, the scroll of Samuel, encompassing First and Second Samuel, is really, it's sort of novelistic in the way that most Old Testament writings are. And it's very descriptive, um, very colorful, very, a lot of detail that just kind of sucks the reader in. With him were quaking with fear, quaking with fear. He waited seven days. Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. So presumably the conversation had been between Saul and Samuel. Samuel says to Saul, okay, I'll be back here, wait seven days for me. Don't do anything. Don't poke the nest again, just wait for me. Seven days. Well, Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. He's not holding them together. They're frightened. They can look across the way and see this giant Philistine army. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished. Wait, can me stop there? So, what's, what's, what office in Israel is Saul taking upon himself? The priesthood. These offerings were done by the priests. Um, you have a king and you have priests. Um, and Saul doesn't have a priest with him, so he just does it himself. Uh, notice he offers up the two, ba one, he also offers up both basic kinds. The burnt offering, where the animal is completely consumed on the altar, um, and the fellowship offering, where the animal is basically cooked and the meat is shared between God and the people. And so Saul offered up the burnt offering and just as he finished making the burnt the offering, Samuel arrived 
and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel, what have you done? And Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought Yahweh's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command Yahweh your God gave you. What command is that? doesn't seem like much in the scheme of things. But you know, wait, wait, wait. Wait for Samuel. Granted, Samuel was running late. I don't know why. But he was to wait for Samuel. And he rashly went ahead with it himself, offered these offerings himself. He was disobedient. You know, it doesn't look like much to us. This is, never has to me, but disobedience like this, it's a sign. In the scriptures, it's a sign. You know, Moses did not enter the promised land because he was obedient in what seemed to be a small thing at the time. And after everything that he had gone through. But it's... it's We are not the judges of what is just and fair. God is the judge of what is just and fair. And here, Saul, this new king, is told to wait for Samuel, and Saul is rash and impatient and, and fearful, right? He sees that the men are scattering, and he's fearful. And so he's going to go ahead and burn, you know, offer this burnt offering and try to get in the good graces of God. And um, he was disobedient. He let his, hmm, he let his fear lead him into disobedience. He let his rashness lead him into disobedience. He knew what Samuel had told him. He doesn't argue with Samuel. He just says, well, 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 here's why I did it. Samuel says, no, you did it. You went ahead and I told you to wait for me. Granted, you know, it wasn't the seven days past, but we're not, interestingly, we're not told how long after the seven days it is that Samuel arrives. I get the impression not long, but it doesn't really say. It doesn't matter. Saul took things upon himself that he shouldn't have taken upon himself which is what kings do. He's king. He can do what he wants. So here's what God says. Verse 13. You have not kept saying it through Samuel, of course, right? There's not like a booming voice on loudspeakers. You have not kept the command Yahweh your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept Yahweh's command. Okay, so let's talk about this because it makes my head swim. 
swirl. Okay, well, okay, wait, wait. Who picks all to start with? God picks all to start with, right? God came to Samuel and said, Samuel, this is your guy. He looks the part. He looks like Gaston. He's big, he's strong, he's handsome. That's your guy. God picks Saul. And now, almost, now we, don't really, we have no sense how much time is, is passing here. Almost, almost instantly, Saul is disobedient and it's over for Saul. His throne is not going to pass to his son Jonathan as would happen typically in this world. That's not how it's going to be. God already knows who the, who the successor is going to be. He's been appointed in God's mind, but not in anybody else's, not even in Samuel's. That still lies several chapters ahead. And you're going to ask me, well, but, 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 why, but, but, why does God do this? Why does God do this? Why does God do this? I'm gonna, my answer is going to be, I'm not God. I don't know. So... And in a lot of ways, you will, you're going to come to get to know Jonathan pretty well. And though it becomes clear, because this is not the last instance of Saul's troubles. He has so many troubles going forward. It's going to be clear that Saul was really never a good pick. In my way of thinking, maybe yours. But Jonathan's different. Jonathan has got qualities and gifts and graces that his father doesn't. Um, he may be a little too, well, I don't want to even say that. He's got gifts and graces his father doesn't. Um, but it's not going to be that. Instead, it's going to be this, this person. It would be a, who is a man after God's own heart. Okay. Most of us have heard that phrase. True? Okay. And we know we're speaking about David. True? that David was a man after God's own heart. That translation is often misunderstood, has been misunderstood many times in English, okay? And um, I consulted s several authorities on Hebrew and they all agree, no, that the sense that God's gonna pick somebody with the character of God or the heart of God isn't what it means. Um, which is really a good thing because other because every time I teach David's story, we come to part of that story and people go, "Oh come on, how could this person have the heart of God in them and do X Y Z?" What it means is simply, it's 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 a man after God's own heart. It is the man God has decided upon. It's the it's the man God's heart has chosen. And it's going to be David, right? And David will become the great idealized king of Israel that for generations people will look back upon. His, from his line must come the Messiah and the rest. But it's not an expression of a king who is going to have the, the character of God in his own heart because David does terrible things that will leave you just there was there's I was just you know um, I follow a number of Christian writers and scholars on 
from all persuasions on Twitter, and there's just been a, another big flare-up about David and Bathsheba and the rest of it over what happens. And when we get there, which is a long time away, so you have to keep coming, you see. <laughs> it's way, way, way down there in 2 Samuel. So we'll talk about it. But that's a, when I dove deeper into this, and I realized, okay, no, not the character. Then it all, I felt relieved almost. Okay, all right, this makes sense. It is the man whose God's heart is settled on. That's what the Hebrew phrase means. Okay, and why has God? Why is God appointing another? Because Samuel has not kept God's command. Saul. I'm sorry. Yes, Saul. Too many S's as well. So, so what does that say about the value God places on obedience? You know, obedience is a word that I, in my life, I've tended to run from. You know, because I, t even anywhere, any setting, if somebody told me to do something, part of the, no matter how, what it was, there was a part of me that wanted to, like, no, I'm not going to do that because you want me to do that. That's kind of sick, I realize. But, you know, <laughs> God wants us to be obedient. Why? Because God's teaching and God's instructions, they're not arbitrary. They're not arbitrary. They are to help us become the people we were created to be to be people who walk in God's way and understand what that is. They're not arbitrary. They're not simply because God said so. No! I mean, it is because God said so, but God said so in the way a good, kind, loving parent wants to help their children. And the children will be much helped if they will actually listen to their parents. Oh yeah. Oh, for a long time. Yeah. So, okay, so what Jim is pointing out that these words right here in 1 Samuel 13, 13 are spoken to Saul. He now knows that he's not going to be the guy. Jonathan's not going to be the guy. It's going to be somebody else and that is that is going to haunt him. And it it doesn't haunt him so much now, but it is going to haunt him more and more as he descends into the darkness, Saul does. It's gonna, and I understand why it haunts him. I sort of get that. You know, he's gonna be on the throne for a long time. How, what would it be like to be on the throne and God has already told you, you're not the guy and already found the next guy in, but hey, stay in the job for a while. Yeah. You know, that would, that would be kind of crummy, wouldn't it? Wouldn't like that much. So don't ask me why would God do this? Okay, put it on your index card that you're keeping that you will take with you when you, you know, walk through those pearly gates and you can ask God yourself, why did you do this? Maybe you should just take your whole Bible with you and just kind of go through, my, why this, why this, why this, why this, why this? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except you see, what does Jeremiah say? Jeremiah says, oh, 
we'll have new hearts. We, the, the law will be written on our hearts. We, we won't have to come together to study about God because we will know God in a way that we can't know God in this life. So maybe you'll get the answers. I don't know. I'd like to think so. All right. Anything else? That's a big moment. This is a big moment right here. Okay? Big moment. Kind of hidden in all the narrative with the battles and all that kind of stuff. That's a big moment. Kind of like um, at the end of chapter 12. That was another big moment. So, verse 15. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. And well, how many does he have left? 600. Now, how about the Philistines? More than there are sand on a seashore. Grains of sand. They're just covering the hills and mountains. There's so many of them. Right? So what does that comparison, what do you think that comparison is likely to lead us? What? They, it seems they can't possibly win. But what do you think, who do you think will? The Israelites, you see? So let's read on. Because, and why, how could the Israelites possibly defeat this giant army and charioteers? Because God is with them. Because God is with them. All right. Now, Saul and his son Jonathan and the men were w with them were staying in Gibeah, in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. So, here is Gibeah and here is Michmash. Very close together. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah. Find my place. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shul, another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim facing the wilderness. So they are heading out. As demonstrated on this map, you can see arrows leading down the roads and stuff. That's about are the Philistines really going to try to take some of the Israelite heartland? The borders, you know, they've been pushed back and forth, and we'll even see that there's intermixing amongst them and that kind of thing. But are the Philistines making a big move? It would seem perhaps so. Verse 19. Now, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. Well, okay. So, the conclusion usually drawn from this is that given the power of the Philistines, the Israelites over time have agreed not to have blacksmiths and they'll rely on the Philistines for, you know, plows and that sort of thing. And from the Philistine perspective, it was a way of keeping their, the Israelites weaker. Sort of like what we call it today, disarming them. 
How about something like that? Verse 20, So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. Okay? The price. I don't know why we're told the price, but we are. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes, and for repointing goads. You know what a goad is? Where's Mona? What's a goad, Mona? A goad is the thing you shove into a cow to make it move, or a sheep. It's just like a big stick. Like when you goad somebody into doing something? Aha! Uh -huh. Mona's, she, Mona's far too kind to animals to use a goad. Right, Mona? Hot shots. <laughs> That's what they call them, hot shots, huh? You, a little electric one. Okay, verse 22. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier was Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Yikes. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them being the king and the prince, right? Because nobody knows what Samuel told Saul. You can bet Saul didn't go tell anybody, <laughs> right? He didn't go announcing this. So nobody knows what Samuel told Saul. He's, he's the king. So the king and the king's successor, his son, Jonathan, they have the two swords in, in, that exist in Israel. All right. We good? Any questions or anything, anybody? So, now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. This is all very hilly. You can see it on, not on this map, but on this map there is some of that relief drawn on the map, right? We can see a ridge lines and mountains and stuff. And, and they're, all, they're all on foot, except the guys who are on chariots. But, you know, you would use passes to get around between the hillsides as, to have, as opposed to having to climb up you know, and then down the other side. So, Jonathan took a detachment. Wait, now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. You can find Michmash on the eastern side of the Red Circle. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come. Let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. In the way armies worked in these days, typically they are sort of opposite each other. They'll be arrayed on one side and then some distance away, the other armies arrayed on the other side. That's how it is like with David and Goliath and so many of these stories. Now Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Ahijah is a priest, a proper priest. We have met him before. He is one of the descendants of Eli. Right? At least he comes from that priestly line. He was a son of Ichabod's brother Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Okay, end of paragraph. The ephod is, is this, this vest of 
stones and stuff that 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 the priest would wear um, had like twelve stones, twelve certain stones for the twelve tribes and things like that, and they would they would use it and and to sort of sort of for deriving oracles and stuff, you know, from God about what the message is. It's a, kind of something like that. Um, a little bit akin to drawing lots or something, rolling dice. You do something and you figure whatever comes back to you is coming from God. Verse 4, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, and the other was called Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. So there's, there's two, um, the NRSV calls it rocky, a rocky crag. So there's two rocky, rocky hillsides, two rocky um, outcroppings that are kind of on opposite sides, okay? Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. This is a standard Israelite-slash-Jewish way to, re to refer to those who are not Israelites. Um, the Israelites circumcised their um, male babies on the eighth day and the peoples among whom they lived by and large didn't practice circumcision. There were some parts of the ancient world that did practice circumcision, but it didn't have the religious connotation that it did for the Israelites. For the Israelites, it was a sign of, uh, of God's presence with them, a sign of God's promises to them. Um, and it was a sign given to Abraham back in the book of, of Genesis. And you will find this all the way through your Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. So he's saying, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps Yahweh will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving, whether by many or by few. Big verse, right? Sure, of course. When God determines to save, of course God saves. Whether by many or by few. There are, if you know the book of Judges at all, there are lots of stories in there about God rescuing his people and doing it with, uh, gosh, this is the, the famous one of Gideon, where the Israelites have a decent-sized army and God keeps sending them home, sending them home until there's just like a handful left. Why? Because when they win the next day, everybody knows it's God's doing, not because of the mightiness of their their army. Well, the armor bearer comes out pretty well in this story. He says, well, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you heart and soul. The armor bearer, this is, um, would be a person, a young man who with, 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 was with Jonathan, Jonathan a lot. Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. So he's committed to staying with Jonathan, no matter, as we'll see, no matter what crazy thing Jonathan comes up with. Okay, so verse 8, Jonathan said, Well, come on then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. So his bright idea 
is to go stand in front of the Philistines. Not hide anymore. Come out of the thickets, come out of wherever their hiding might be, and we're going to go stand in front of those Philistines here at this place I'm picking. So, he says, If the Philistines say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that Yahweh has given them into our hands. So they're going to go, they're going to present, just help me make sure I read this right. They're going to go present themselves. If the Philistines are going to come down out of the high ground to where Jonathan is, then um, uh, they're going to stay there on the low ground, Jonathan and the armor bearer, and not, not go up and, and try to accomplish anything. But if they say, come up to us, if, if the Philistines shout down to Jonathan, come on up, man. <laughs> we got a margarita machine up here. It's sweet. So then he says, okay, we're going to climb up there because that's going to be the sign that Yahweh has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves at the Philistine outpost. And I just pictured them standing down there, these two Young guys, Jonathan's young, um, the armor bearer would be young, and shouting to the Philistines, here we are, here we are, you know, na-na-na-na, whatever. <laughs> Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. And the men of the outpost up there on the rocky crag, right, shouted to Jonathan, his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan turned to his armor bearer and he said, Climb up after me. Yahweh has given them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philist so literally, so picture, you know, have you ever seen any of those uh, documentaries about these free climbing people? There was one I watched, it was like an hour and a half long, I was a wreck by the time it was done, <laughs> with this guy who's free climbing, this, these sheer faces. So there's this rocky, rocky thing, and, and up Jonathan goes, free climbing his way up there with the armor right behind him. The Philistines fell um, before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. So the two of them climb, they get up there, the Philistines follow them there, and Jonathan and the armor bearer are going to wipe the field with them. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So Jonathan and his armor bearer are fierce fighters, but who's with them? God's with them. You see? You're telling this story around a campfire 500 years later. The kids are all listening to this story about Jonathan. They're routing the Philistines. God's with them. God's with them. God's with them. Verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army of the Philistines. Those in the camp and those in the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. I don't know what people there would have experienced that day, 
but it was a panic sent by God. They found out that these two teenagers had killed 20 of their men. They imagined, I imagine they thought that the whole Israelite army was falling on them. Maybe that's what they felt like. Maybe that's the feeling God created in them. I don't know, but it was a panic sent by God. That's the key piece of this. This is God's victory. They can. It, the earthquake-prone territory is more up in Turkey, but they're not that far from from Damascus, you know. So, but I don't think Israel suffers nearly as much from earthquakes as, as as up in Turkey. But that could be. It could have been like a little earth tremor. I don't know what. I don't know. Does it really matter? You see. What's the point? What are we supposed to take away from that paragraph? That this was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Now why weren't they there? Because they had gone to attack the Philistine outpost. Saul doesn't know they did that. They did that in secret. He didn't tell him. Saul, Jonathan didn't tell anybody. Dad, dad doesn't know. Right? So, verse 18. So then Saul said to Ahijah, he's the priest, right? Bring the ark of God. Oh, my. At that time, it was with the Israelites. Well, so what do we discover now? Think back a month and a half ago, <laughs> however long it was. They're still taking it into battle with them. It's just still right there. They should have it back someplace safe, but they don't. They, you know? So that's why the priest is there, because the Ark of God is there. The Ark of the Covenant is there. So Saul says to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. Verse 19, while Saul was talking to the priests, tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. If you're like me, you look at that and you wonder, what? So what is that about? Okay, so... Um, Imagine, I'll imagine that you had in your pocket two rocks, one white, one black, and you have them in your pockets, and your plan is when you finish doing all of your thing, what you're doing, whatever it is you're doing, you're going to pull one out, and if it's white, you're going to attack, and if it's black, you're going to run for home. That's what's happening. It wouldn't be two stones like that. Well, the umum and the thurum, thumum, thurum. But that's what's happening, is that the priest is, is, is like consulting God. And whatever his hand pulls, the expression is whatever his hand pulls out, that, that's what they're going to do. So Saul says, we're going to cut all that short. Just go ahead, and, go ahead and pull your hand out. Saul doesn't wait to find out what the answer is. 
Then Saul and all his men assembled, and they went to the battle, and they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. The What? It doesn't make sense, but we don't know what kind of panic they're in. You know, they're, 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 they're striking out blindly out of their fear. Um, it's total panic in the Philistine camp. This is not the first time you run into this. This won't be the last time you run into this in the Old Testament. There are several stories like this where this panic that comes from God falls on the opposing army and they run, they strike each other, um, they fall in large numbers. The point of it is that this is going to be God's victory. Verse 21. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So what does that tell you? That there are Hebrews Israelites who are living in and amongst the Philistines. But that had happened before that happens in the book of Judges. That's Samson's story. Okay? So this intermarriage, this intermixing with the Philistines on the west and the um, Israelites of the east, that's been going on. So now there are Hebrews who are actually part of the Philistines. And in light of what is happening, they sensibly change sides, <laughs> right? I mean, really, that part you understand, right, Kathy? Yes, in light of what's going on that day, yep, yep, they're coming home, baby. Um, verse 22, when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. Verse 23, so, dot, 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 in big bold letters, so, on that day, Yahweh saved Israel. Yahweh saved Israel. Just as Yahweh had saved Israel many times in the book of Judges, so Yahweh is still saving Israel, and the battle moved on beyond Beth Aven. Bethel. House of God, Beth Aven, House of Evil. So, and the Philistines are running what direction? They're running westward. I mean, the Israelites are not going to conquer them or anything. The Philistines will be the dominating enemy throughout the story of, in, of Samuel, Saul, then David, and the rest of it. Um, all right, so. Thoughts, questions? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Saul uh, ruled 42 years. David was a young man, correct? Yes. So, how old? I mean, who knew about David? Did any? Okay, so your question is like, who knew about David at this point? Was he even alive? He, he was alive, yes. Yeah, might have been. Again, the time frames pass, and I respect the NRSV's RSV that's putting blank into the how old Saul was and how long he reigned. Okay, because I think the NIV is filling in the blank. I'm not sure why they weren't comfortable just leaving it blank. But when 
Samuel comes and ends up anointing David, he will be a very, a very young man. So I think, yes, he would have been born at this time. But does he know anything about it? No. It's only Samuel and Saul. They're the only two people who know. And so what's going to happen is that Saul is going to be king on the throne while his successor, who will be David, will be king of Israel. Sort of like, sort of like the one who holds the throne and God's king. God's king being David, Saul. You're going to see it's a very complicated outworking of all of that. It's not clean and neat. There's no, there's no clean and neat little passing of the throne or anything like that um, in, in this story. But Saul knows that he is not, he's not going to be the guy. Okay? So, anything else? Jonathan and David are contemporaries. Yep, they're contemporaries. In fact, they will become very good friends. They will become very good friends. And so, if you want to ask yourself, well, how old is Jonathan? You could probably peg David at about the same age. At this point, they're both very young. David was young when he faced Goliath. Jonathan is young here. Jonathan is young in this story. I don't think he's 12, right? But, but he's, he's young. He's young because he, Mike's right. I mean, Jonathan and David are roughly contemporaries. When you meet them and they become like soulmates, very, very best friends, you get the idea that they are about the same age. So, you know, so I don't know. Maybe the two of them are 14 right now. That could be. You know, 14 in our world is what? Dazed middle schoolers walking around, boys walking around, you know, being jerks most of the, most of the time. But in this world, they're fathers and husbands. Yeah, yeah. As soon as, as, soon as kids could biologically have babies, they had babies. And they got married, and you know, it's, it's just that you, again, if you take our world and you wouldn't try to impose it on the Bible, you're going to end up all, all messed up. So, so they had 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16 they had big responsibilities, right? The lifespan of a human could be into their 90s. But generally, the average life expectancy was probably in the 40s. Driven by what? Driven by the fact that only half of the babies born made it past the age of five. Yeah. So, so because they, they just didn't have the medical and all the rest of it that, that we have now. But people could still live to, ri to a ripe old age, but just not nearly as many people. I mean, we expect now to make it, you know, to a ripe old age, really, and we're disappointed when we don't. In this world, that wouldn't have been people's expectations. You can see it in the book of the prophets, when the prophets speak of a day coming when we will all grow to be 
a hundred years old. And that's just this insane promise that, that conveys the goodness and the richness of, of God's renewed world. Okay, so we're going to end there, and when we're going to come back next week, well, Saul makes a rash oath, and Jonathan is caught up in it. Okay, so that's a teaser. <laughs> Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, These stories are interesting and there's all kinds of moving parts in them and the rest of it, but help us to really hear that indeed we are in your hands. You, in, you are indeed our rescuer. We live in a world that seems to be filled with so much darkness. The truth is it has always been filled with so much darkness, but your son Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Let us Reflect that light into this world. Let us be, let us do what we can to help others to leave the darkness and step into the light so that we can be ever truer disciples, ever more obedient, um, ever more understanding that you teach us what is good and right um, for our good and for this world's good. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.